America's incredible prosperity was built atop a foundation of free markets and free people. We cannot allow left-wing ideologues to undermine that foundation. But with inflation on the rise and a struggling market, many in America's political class are attempting to recycle their failed socialist ideas. National Review's Capital Record podcast is standing in the gap, providing you with the arguments and analysis you need to defend our economic system. Financier and NRI trustee David Barnson hosts interviews with the nation's top business leaders, entrepreneurs, and financial commentators as they provide a practical and moral vindication of America's capitalist way of life. With guests such as Larry Kudlow, Steve Forbes, and Art Laffer, Capital Record invites you to tune in for top-level economic commentary you can't get anywhere else. Join the conversation on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your shows. What are the most exciting new energy technologies and how can we bring them online? We'll discuss all this and more with guest Rich Powell as part of our special sponsored series on energy. This is our final episode in a series we've been running the last several weeks. Your regularly scheduled programming will return with our next episode. Our sponsor is ClearPath, an organization devoted to breakthrough energy technologies that you can find at clearpath.org. Rich Powell, by the way, is the CEO of ClearPath, and you are, of course, listening to a National Review podcast. So, Rich, thanks so much for joining us. So, situate our listeners, tell us a little bit about your background and a little bit about uh, ClearPath. Sure. Well, first, thanks for having me. Uh, really excited that y'all are exploring this topic. Um, yeah, so I'm, I'm Rich Powell, the CEO of ClearPath and ClearPath Action. Uh, we're a group of organizations that are focused on developing and advancing policy that accelerates breakthrough innovations that reduce emissions in the power and industrial sectors globally. Um, so we've got about 25 folks in DC. We work on federal policy all the time. We're blessed to be supported by philanthropy to do this. Uh, we work primarily with right of center policymakers and we sort of take a conservative approach to all this. And that means trying to really drive down the cost of clean energy so that markets both here in the United States and most importantly around the world will take this stuff up on their own. Because we believe that unless we actually have that, unless we have stuff that's so good uh, and high performing and compelling it, that happened to be clean, mm-hmm. uh, we're not actually going to see global uptake uh, of all this technology. And then, you know, if you care about problems like climate change and, you know, the global emissions challenge that goes in and feeds into climate change, we're not actually going to solve that issue unless we actually have much better technology to solve it. So, so some of our listeners are thinking right now, okay, you know, we, we like technological breakthroughs and, and making new stuff cheaper so people will adopt it. But, you know, we got a lot of, a lot of good cheap energy now that's just kind of disfavored by a, a lot of people who, who want to suppress it. So why wouldn't we just kind of run out the string, use all that, uh, n- not, uh, not mess around with government regulations or subsidies. And eventually these breakthroughs will happen on their own. Uh, so let's not worry about it and screw up the, the current energy picture. What's, what's wrong with that general uh, way of viewing this issue? Well, let me start by saying I largely agree with that general way of viewing the issue. So, you know, we have an amazing suite of technologies today. We've got things like hydropower and nuclear and geothermal and natural gas. We've got increasingly good resources in wind, wind and solar. Markets are taking this stuff up pretty rapidly. Markets have already taken it up pretty rapidly. So you know, 40% of our national energy supply now is, is clean energy from, with half of that coming from nuclear. So it supplies more than 50% of our national clean energy. And then a lot of the remainder is hydro because that's a renewable energy source that's flexible, right? It can, it can flex up and down and kind of respond to the grid. And then there's a lot of wind and solar now that's coming to the mix. A lot of that's been driven by subsidies, but some of it's increasingly economical and then just a little bit from, from geothermal. We also have this unbelievable abundance of natural gas in this country. And mm-hmm. that has really been the big story about cleaning up the U.S. power grid in the past like 15 years. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we had a, uh, I mean, the, just the, the quick story on that, right, is we had 
we had this national program, right? The Department of Energy Office of Fossil Energy in the 80s and 90s worked with the private sector, particularly this unbelievable entrepreneur from Mitchell Energy, uh, George Mitchell, to un- unleash this resource. And we did a bunch of public-private partnerships. We kind of helped Mitchell Energy develop this stuff. DOE developed a bunch of the foundational technologies that enabled shale gas, horizontal drilling, 3D seismic imaging, diamond-headed drill bits, you know, hydraulic fracturing, all this cool stuff. And then we unleashed this resource, which has effectively made North America energy independent, um, all within the space of a, you know, two decades. It's, it's pretty incredible. And by the way, it's driven emissions way down. And so we mm-hmm. take a lot of inspiration from that story, right? So uh, that's, that's been great. It's not all the way clean, right? So unmitigated gas-fired power plants still do have, they're a lot cleaner than what they were replacing, which was primarily coal and some oil burning. Uh, but they still have greenhouse gases that come out of them, right? So they still have carbon dioxide that comes out of the burning. They still have a little bit of methane from the, from the upstream. We could fix the methane thing. That's easy. The problem is the CO2 that comes out of the, uh, out of burning that as a, as a fuel. We can actually capture that as well. So, and in fact, actually, I just learned literally today, one of the leading companies, um, working on that challenge just announced its first big commercial project down in Texas to build a new gas fired power plant with zero emissions. So it will mm-hmm. capture all of the emissions that come out and then it will just store those emissions back underground. So think like we pump the gas up, you're extracting the energy out of the gas using, uh, you know, using a turbine and fire and then you're putting it back on, you're putting the remaining gas, the CO2 back underground. So it never goes into the atmosphere and never causes and contributes to the, you know, the problems of climate change and, and global warming, right? Um, so, so we think with technology, we can continue to use our amazing gas abundance. And then we need to do a lot more with the other already clean technologies we already have. We need to do more with nuclear and hydro and geothermal and energy storage and all that sort of stuff. So, so let's hit all those individually. First of all, though, let's, let's stick on the, the carbon capture. So is that a, um, a particular difficult, sophisticated technology that, that we've kind of been working on over time? Or tell us a little more detail about the story on carbon capture. Yeah, well, so like any big, you know, complicated industrial technology, it's it's not easy, right? This isn't something somebody can mm-hmm. do in the garage, right? Like this is a right. big, complicated industrial technology. Um, but it's sort of on the same order of magnitude as, you know, as, as drilling for oil and gas or running a big petrochemical refinery or something in the first place. You know, it's about moving gases around, separating gases, you know, temperature, pressure, that kind of stuff. It's actually stuff we're really, really good at in, in the U.S. It's one of the places that we remain predominant globally. Uh, it's kind of that in nuclear energy. A lot of other things we've lost our edge in, right? Like, so we've lost our edge in manufacturing solar panels, for example. Uh, we have not lost our edge in petroleum engineering and refining um, or gas engineering and refining. refining. And uh, it's, it's a place that we have all the leading technologies and concepts. So in this case, for example, uh, you had the, the chief technology officer of Air Products, one of the big industrial gas companies, uh, sort of just redesign how a gas-fired power plant would work. And he basically turned the process of carbon capture, which normally is something you kind of bolt onto the back of a power plant. Um, he turned it into a feature of the plant, not a bug. He, he kind of made the plant work in a way that you never actually have to capture the CO2 because the only thing that comes out of the plant is pure CO2 already at pipeline pressure. And interestingly, when you redesign it that way, you can actually run the plant a lot hotter and at higher, temp- at, uh, higher pressures, which can make a much more efficient power plant to run. So it may actually be just a better power plant. And that's the kind of thing we're, we're mm-hmm. really interested in. It's like, wow, is this actually just a better way to extract energy right. from natural gas? And then by the way, you already have the CO2 totally ready to put back underground. And then you so, can uh, use that. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah. So stu- stupid layman's question. So are you sort of like sucking the CO2 out of the emissions or are you taking all the emissions and and putting them back. You know what I mean? Yeah, no, well, so, yeah. Yeah, the only emissions are, so the problem with like a normal gas plant or coal plant or oil plant or internal combustion engine, whatever, is actually not the fuel uh, that you, you have. It's all the other stuff that's in the air that used to burn, right? So like, you remember like high school chemistry, like what you're doing, like, let's say, you know, natural gas is very simple. It's, it's methane. So that's CH4 and you're combining CH4 with O2, pure oxygen, in the presence of heat, that's combusting, and that CH4 and that O2 is combined is, is transforming and releasing a lot of energy into two things, into CO2 and into water, right? Water vapor, H2O, right? So that's the simple reaction. 
Um, and if that's what you're doing, if you're burning pure methane and pure oxygen, that's all a very simple reaction. You got nothing left but CO2 and H2O at the end. It's actually very easy to take the water out of that. Then you just have pure CO2. Easy. You just put it back into a pipeline and you can just inject that back underground. We know exactly how to do that. We do 40 million tons a year of that already around the world. What's a problem is when you burn uh, CH4 and O2 in the presence of other stuff. And of course, what we're breathing right now is a lot more than just pure oxygen. What we're breathing is actually primarily nitrogen. We all forget about that, but that's like the main thing in air. That's why the sky is blue because, you know, the air is like 80% nitrogen. And when you burn all this stuff in the presence of nitrogen, it means that the gases that are coming out at the end actually have more pollutants in them. They have, some, they have something called NOx that comes out of them, NO, NOx, NO something, NO some number after. That itself is a pollutant, right? Like we don't want to be breathing NOx. It's something that contributes to smog and acid rain and other stuff. So we put controls on power plants already to not have them have NOx. And then just the complex process of something, gases are coming out, most of it's pure nitrogen, but then some of it's CO2, and we're trying to like pull the CO2 out of all those other gases. That's actually what's really complicated and hard. But like I said, you can re-engineer a power plant so you never put the air in in the first place. You just do pure methane and pure oxygen. You burn it that way. It's called oxycombustion. Again, this is something like people have known about for a long time. Uh, petroleum engineers do it in a lot of different places in like, you know, the refining industry. Just nobody really thought strongly about doing it in the power plant. Mm -hmm. um, and so these folks took that challenge on. It does require you got to have like bolt on something else in the beginning to give you a bunch of pure oxygen. But every single hospital in the country has one of these already. Like we're manufacturing pure oxygen out of the air all over the place with these things called air separating units. And so it's just a place where we can use, we can kind of recombine a lot of existing, really well understood industrial technology in a new way and do something radically cleaner and, and maybe actually better, like maybe and, cheaper and, and maybe and better. Effect, and, it, and it could be cost effective. That's what's it seems like it might be. I mean, you know, we'll see, like we'll have to demonstrate a couple of these and we'll see. But what's clear is it's not a lot more expensive than, than an existing gas plant, right? Like it's kind of marginally, it might be marginally more expensive, but there are reasons to think that at scale, it might actually be cheaper. Mm -hmm. um, and, and that's the kind of thing that, you know, then you can actually see that's like what happened in this, you know, with, uh, with our last transition, you know, we had, we had natural gas and it was cheaper to run than coal, right? Um, at least while gas prices were really cheap. Now that's changed a little bit with the global energy price crisis and gas prices going back up. Um, but, uh, once we had a cheaper alternative, markets just took that like gangbusters. I mean, we have reduced emissions in the U S power sector because of natural gas, faster than the Obama clean power plan would have done it faster than the Waxman marquee cap and trade bill would have done it. It was innovation in markets mm -hmm. that reduced power much more rapidly than any projection of like, top down regulation or, uh, or a cap and trade system or anything like that. So for a, a conservative audience, when you were ticking off sort of the, the categories of, of really promising new developments here, the one that, that everyone's kind of instinctively in, in favor of is nuclear. Like we we got to yeah. get nuclear. And I had, a, I had a, a libertarian energy expert friend. I haven't talked to him in, in a while, but when I was talking to him about this a couple of years ago, he was always like, it's fantasy. It's too expensive. You're going to have to subsidize it. Like you, you subsidize, you know, all, all the other um, green energy. Uh, is that, is that uh, too pessimistic or an outdated view or how are we with, with the cost effectiveness of nuclear? Yeah, I, th I think it is. Look, there are reasons uh, to support that. view. I don't want to like dismiss all of that. Um, uh, nuclear is definitely something we work on a clear path. We think is a really important part of the mix. Um, you know, let me start from the top and say, you know, like you can power a whole economy on nuclear energy. We have an example of that. It's France. It's gone mm -hmm. actually quite well. Unfortunately, it required a great big state centric build to make all those nuclear plants. But once they, they're they in basically place, it's basically all it's so 80 percent of their electricity comes from nuclear mm -hmm. it's where we were headed right so where it's where we were headed right up until uh the late now. 70s early mm -hmm. 80s right um and then so we had another 200 nuclear plants on the books if we had continued on that track we would have been a largely nuclear economy unfortunately one of the things that holds back nuclear that happened right which was the three mile island right. accident happened right uh followed several years later by the chernobyl accident um the, the lesson to take from Chernobyl, of course, is don't let socialists anywhere near power plants. Right. right. So the difference between those two accidents, right, Chernobyl, several dozen people died. 
Uh, thousands more people were probably sickened over time, although a lot of that sickness was totally preventable, but it's because the whole thing was mismanaged so right. badly that all those people got sick. Um, but the, it was a terribly run plant with a terrible technology that no one should have been running. And because of the secrecy of the Soviet Union and the awful way they responded to it, the way that they ran the plants, and all that kind of stuff, it was kind of a, a unfortunately a disaster you could have you know, seen coming, um, uh, like in retrospect. Uh, you know, look at what we did in, in the United States with Three Mile Island. We had a full meltdown of a nuclear reactor, basically the worst thing that could have happened to, uh, to reactor in the U.S. Uh, not one person died because we had a very fast and responsible uh, response to the thing. And we continued running the reactor right next to it until two years ago and it mm -hmm. ran safely and totally fine like there was no you know i mean there was a lot of mass concern about the issue and it was a really bad day for the you know for the company that was running that thing because they lost a great big expensive piece of of capital uh but in terms of a, an actual big public health or safety problem it was totally contained um in a very small place and you know that whole industrial facility around it we were able to keep using for decades after that so, I mean, you can, you can, we, if we had continued building nuclear like that, uh, we'd have, you know, a power sector in the U.S. that would have far lower emissions. It would be very insulated from global, you know, uh, uh, energy cycles like we're seeing right now. So this winter, for example, gas prices are going to be very high in the Northeast, for example, because the Northeast is now shut down. I believe all of it's remaining. No, it, uh, there are, there are maybe two left, but most of the northeastern power plant, nuclear power plants have shut down. So the northeast is very reliant on gas-fired power plants uh, and some wind and solar in the region. That stuff doesn't work as well in the winter, unfortunately. And so that region, especially because New York State has said they don't want to build new gas pipelines across New York State, they're going to be increasingly reliant on liquefied natural gas coming into Boston Harbor. Uh, of course, they're now competing for liquefied natural gas with the rest of the world, who's paying sky high prices, like in Europe, for that for that LNG, all as a part of uh, you know the tragic consequences of uh, of Russia's savage invasion of Ukraine. Uh, and uh, and now you know those folks are probably going to be wishing that they kept those nukes online uh, this winter when when electricity prices go go pretty high. So, at the risk of diverting you a little bit, did you see the net Netflix Chernobyl show? I did. Yeah, I did. You know, it is was that, good television. Is it generally television. accurate or yeah, accurate enough television. for TV? Yeah, I mean, like, I think the parts that were accurate were the, uh, you know, were the, the awful dysfunction of the Soviet state that they portrayed, mm -hmm. I think, pretty well. Uh, what they didn't tell you is, like, a lot of the scenes of the guys doing, I mean, and look, people did unbelievably heroic things. Like, the other takeaway from that and, like, that whole situation is, like, say what you will about um, about anyone. I mean, what we've actually now, I mean, this was in Ukraine, right? Like Ukrainians are badasses, right? Like the, the people, which we've now all seen, you know, uh, I hope that's okay to say on the podcast. The, uh, but uh, if, if, our, the, if our rating uh, is changes, it's, it's all your fault. Okay. Right? All right. Okay. <laughs> all right. Yeah. But I mean, the, uh, the, 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 the sacrifices that people made to respond to that crisis were incredible. So just a lot of personal courage and, the vast majority of the people that that show showed doing unbelievably dangerous things to help resolve what definitively the worst nuclear disaster that's ever happened. You know, the, a lot of the people that the show sort of implied were going at a certain death lived for like another 40 or 50 years. Right. Mm -hmm. So like a lot of those people, you know, this show definitely like the, like the guy waiting and, and waste yeah. deep radioactive water. That or, guy that they implied died three hours later or something like that. He lived until like the two mm thousands. -hmm. Right. So the, the, it, the show definitely fed some hysteria around the risks of radiation for nuclear energy. There were terrible radiation events that happened around Chernobyl, and there were people that directly died from it, so especially the firefighters who were responding to it early on. Um, but the region around Chernobyl today is actually like a thriving ecosystem, largely because people have kind of left that ecosystem. Turns out we're worse for ecosystems than uh uh, than radiation, uh, certainly, especially the low levels of radiation that are still in that area. Same is true of the Fukushima, you know, area, the radiation there is sort of like at background levels. I mean, it, you know, eating a banana or living in the Rocky Mountains is much more dangerous from a radiation perspective than, uh, than yeah, visiting the, are, the, the Fukushima. Bananas, yeah, bananas, bananas, you, you get a little dose, you get a little dose from a banana, uh, you get a little dose from all the granite in the Rocky Mountains or flying on an airplane. Uh, like the French actually have a pretty rational view of this. They treat their airline attendants like radiation workers because they do get a dose every time they fly, uh, just like somebody who works at an x-ray thing. So think about that the next time you're flying. But the net net is that it's actually not that dangerous, right? Um, 
But anyway, this is all the old technology. Right. Um, we now actually have new, much more advanced technology that's kind of like the leap that went from the same leap that's kind of from Chernobyl to what we had at Three Mile Island, which was much better and much less dangerous when something right. went wrong. So are, so are, we acquiring, like are we acquiring this new stuff? You know, what, what we are. What would, what would be the, the rational course in your view and, and how are we meeting it or not? So uh, there's a bunch of new technologies. We can take the existing stuff and just make it smaller. So this is what people tend to call SMRs or small modular reactors. There's a bunch of reasons to think that they might end up being cheaper than the, than the great big battleship ones. And then we can have new generations of reactors. Sometimes people call these advanced reactors or Gen 4 reactors. And they take water out of the picture altogether. So it's not a water-cooled reactor. It's cooled by something else like a like a gas or liquid metal or something like that. There's a bunch of reasons that that's better. I can, I can talk about, but the, uh, we're investing in all of these technologies in the U S we've got something now called the advanced reactor demonstration program. It's one of several projects that were set up by the bipartisan infrastructure bill. So well, first actually by the energy act of 2020 that, um, you know, happened right at the end of the, the Trump administration. One of the last things that president Trump's under the law, um, and then, uh, was fully funded by the bipartisan infrastructure uh, act. So kind of robust bipartisan support behind this thing. So we're going to do it now. It's not a question of whether we're going to do it. It's just, you know, how many years is it going to take to get this thing up and running? The projects have been selected. So there's, there's two major projects that will go up one in Wyoming, one in Washington state. The one in Wyoming is Bill Gates's company, the TerraPower advanced reactor concept. It's a sodium cooled fast reactor, which just basically means liquid metal. So the, the nuclear fuel is so hot that it sits in a pool of liquid metal. Uh, and the liquid metal is the thing that kind of absorbs the heat. And then we go and take and eventually boil water and make electricity out of it. But the fuel isn't sitting in water. The problem with fuel sitting in water is water boils. And when water boils, it goes under a lot of pressure. And then the pressure can cause accidents and releases. But liquid metal doesn't boil. It just melts. And so there's no pressure buildup in the first place that you ever have to worry about then causing some kind of a release of materials. Um, the other one that's being built in Washington state is a high temperature gas reactor. Uh, and that is really interesting because it, it might solve two problems. We've got one problem with greenhouse gases, which is that we need to find a clean way to make cheap electricity. We have another problem with greenhouse gases. is We need to find a, a, a clean way to make cheap heat. So today, the cheapest way to make heat is, you know, burn coal, burn gas, something like that. Those all have emissions as well. If you're serious about running like a steel plant or a petrochemical facility or something like that and you do it clean and cheap, you need a cheap way to make clean clean heat. Um, so the X Energy plant that will be built in Washington State is going to pilot that. And then Dow Chemical has now announced that it's going to buy one of these things and it's going to put it in a chemical plant in Louisiana to make clean chemicals cheaply, which is also very interesting and promising. So we're, we're doing this. It's, it's part of the biggest program DOE's ever been asked to do since the Manhattan Project. So we're going to demonstrate sort of 30 different advanced technologies over the next seven years. Uh, and it's not just nuclear, it's also enhanced geothermal and long duration energy storage and carbon capture, like I was talking about earlier. Um, so we've, I think we've got a real shot. Um, there's obviously, there's a lot of risk in actually getting that done at DOE, but I think we've got a real shot to get some of these technologies. So do you have any background in chemistry or just kind of learned all this by following the issue? I'm sadly, a, you know, I, I went to law school. I can't say I'm a lawyer, but I did go to law school. Yeah, but uh, I've kind of learned all this stuff along the way. So uh, energy storage, <clears throat> is this the, the issue? You know, we've seen it in well, we've seen it a lot of places. It's, it's obviously one of the weaknesses of solar and wind, which is that the wind is not always blowing, the sun is not always shining. You had these kind of uh, brownouts in California not too long ago when they're like between 5 and 8 p.m., you know, when you, when the, apparently energy usage is at its max, but the sun's going down, you know, don't charge your electric car, you know, m make sure you're doing various things to, to not overtax the system. Is that what we're talking about with en energy capture? Yeah, Energy storage. Yeah. So we're trying, yep. We're, we're trying to find ways to make those intermittent resources like primarily wind and solar into more like a, a base load or a flexible resource. Mm -hmm. We want to put that stuff away for the future. I mean, electricity is kind of crazy. I mean, you just got to start by thinking about how crazy electricity is as a commodity. There's nothing else in our economy that has to be created at exactly the same instant it's consumed. 
right? Because mm-hmm. it moves at the speed of light down an electricity pole. And so there's, it's not like milk, right? Like, you know, milk is like created, you know, on day one and put into a cold truck and moved somewhere else in the country and consumed on day three or whatever. We actually have a process of both uh, transporting it and storing it. With electricity, you have to generate it at exactly the same time it's being consumed because we don't have any kind of meaningful storage along the way. We're trying so to start building. If, I, if I'm turning on a light now, it's basically traveling instantaneously. If there's a power plant five miles yes. away, it's almost instantaneously coming here. Like it's that mm-hmm. second. And so this is how hard it is to manage a power grid because they've got to be able to predict when you're going to turn that light switch on, which they're effectively doing, right? They kind of generally know mm-hmm. when people turn on you know, televisions and lights and all that kind of stuff. They've got just a little bit of flex in the system. So like within a small band, you mm-hmm. know, people can go up and down, but as they sense more power demand coming on, they've got to ramp up power plants, you know, if they're generating excess electricity, what happens to that? Is it just, uh, well, they, they can't or the system gets overheated. So they have to start, mm-hmm. they have to start ramping the system back down. So this is a this can also be a big problem with renewables. It's a problem they call curtailment, right? When there's if there's more uh, wind uh, uh, shining or or uh, sorry, yeah, wi- uh, yeah, yeah, wind blowing or sun shining, um, then uh, then there's demand at any given time, right? They, they actually have to do what's called curtailing, which say like turn off your solar plant, disconnect it from the grid or turn off your wind turbine, or they have to figure out some other thing to do with it, like dump it into, I mean, ideally dump it into energy storage, uh, which we don't have very much of right now, uh, or send it out. If you've got a connection to another power grid, like send it out to some other power grid. So California, for example, has a lot of solar in Southern California. They end up dumping a lot of their uh, low cost solar into Arizona. And actually they pay the Arizonans to take the extra solar. It's cheaper than turning it off to pay the Arizonans to take that and to do other things that in, in Arizona with it. Um, so, 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 so what, so what with, with your amazing bil- ability to uh, describe uh, highly technical chemical processes and, and other, other issues in layman's terms. So what, what, how, how would you be um, storing this, this electricity that's zipping around at the speed of yeah, light? Totally. Well, there's a, there's a bunch of different ways to do it. Um, the, the one that everybody thinks about is batteries, right? So just to do more with batteries, that's, that's our main way of storing, small amounts of energy today. So we all have phones, right? That we charge the phones at one point, we use them at a different point. The energy that's been stored in the chemicals within the batteries in the phone is, is how we do that. We could do much so, better batteries. So let me, let me pause there because it's something I've never thought about. You're, you're blowing my mind in so many ways. Uh, <laughs> this, this episode. So a battery is, it's storing electricity, and it, but it's, it's storing it in the chemical reaction? Yes. It's, so it's actually, so it is storing the electricity is coming in and that's causing chemicals to have reactions amongst themselves and and store effectively store that energy in the chemicals. But now it's being stored as potential energy in those chemicals, not as electricity. And then when you later on want to get it back out, these batteries, I mean, it's unbelievable to think about that we carry these around in our pockets all day long or that, you know, they, they, they power lights all over the place, mm-hmm. right? That... Um, that in the instant you want it, you trigger a corresponding kind of opposite chemical reaction within those batteries that then sends electricity back out of the thing, right? So that's what's happening in a battery. And you could do that at huge scale, right? So we have started building grid scale batteries. Um, a lot of those are, you know, the things that say Tesla, for example, is saying or, or is selling is just, it's, it's the same thing that we use in our phones, which for cars, they've kind of put a ton of those together for a car battery. Then for the grid, Tesla is now selling even more of those all linked together to power a power grid, right? So it is possible to do that. It's a very expensive way today to store a lot of electricity at grid scale. Uh, Grids just have to operate a lot more cheaply than any of the electric consumer devices that we use. So people are experimenting with other kinds of batteries, not like the lithium ion batteries that are in our phone. Um, I, the one that I think is the coolest that is, uh, is kind of, uh, now, you know, just about to be demonstrated in, uh, Minnesota and Georgia is called form energy. It's an iron air battery. So it doesn't use all the stuff that's in a lithium ion battery, some of which is really either difficult to source or it's <laughs> the supply chain is entirely controlled by uh, surprise. China, um, has, uh, has, you know, eaten up the supply chains and the processing and all that for a lot of these things. Um, but so these iron air batteries will, will literally just use iron, which is a super abundant, especially here in the U.S. 
uh, and, uh, and, and air to effectively rust and unrust the iron. And surprisingly, that chemical reaction of rusting and unrusting iron also can be made to produce electricity. So they're going to use batteries like that to store huge amounts of energy uh, over long periods of time on the grid. That's an exciting development. You, you also could do other things. You don't have to do batteries. You can, you can basically anything where you can store energy, you can use to store electricity. So the classic one is called pumped hydropower. That's where you've got a lake at one elevation. You've got a lake at another elevation. When you have excess energy, you use it to pump water up to the top of the lake. Uh, and then um, when you need it back, you let that water fall back down to the lower lake and you do it through turbines. And that's actually a pretty efficient way to store very large quantities of energy over time. That's kind of the classic one. Uh, it's uh, There aren't that many great places in the country to do this pumped hydro. Um, you could do things very much, very much like that using underground storage. So there's cool companies that are experimenting both with injecting water underground and putting it under pressure. And then basically letting it like explode back up almost like a drill head. It's a cool company called Quidnet um, that's experimenting with that. Other people are doing the same thing, but with air underground, like compressed air and letting that kind of um, expand back out. So there's lots of different things we could do. The key is that we just need to demonstrate a couple of these at, at really large scale and figure out which ones are the most robust and what work in, in different situations. So we're, you're just talking about water. So let's go to geothermal. So that sounds cool to me, but um, is that another technology that would be limited geographically to, to where you have the natural features necessary, or, or can we um, ha- have synthetic versions of this? Well, his- historically, it has been limited. So we've literally had to go to look for places that have geysers, right? So like Yellowstone would mm-hmm. be a great place, for example, yeah. to develop geothermal. The National Park Service probably wouldn't be that excited about us drilling there for, uh-huh. that, for that, but like you could, right? Um, but so there are other places that are not national parks where this has been done, especially in California and Nevada. The key is all the rock is really hot under us. If you dig deep enough, right? The question is, is there some way to get all that heat energy out of that rock? Right. We like, we're all standing in a molten core. Like we know that's what's down there. Um, and so there are folks that are doing something called enhanced geothermal systems where they're basically making their own luck. They're not just finding places where, this water was underground and coming up as steam. They're actually injecting water or some other way to transfer the heat back up out from deep underground. Uh, And those have unbelievable promise. So there's a really cool company called Fervo that are veterans of the oil and gas industry. Uh, We've gotten actually really, because of hydraulic fracturing and that whole revolution I mentioned earlier, we've gotten really good at drilling down underground and injecting a lot of liquid down there and extracting things. We could be extracting heat not just chemicals um, from hydraulic fracturing and horizontal drilling and all that sort of stuff. And so they're looking at ways to take those same technologies and same approaches. The other cool thing about this is again, like this is a place where America is still preeminent. Like nobody drills like we do. Nobody understands what's going on under the surface. Like we do, we are the best positioned country in the world to capture the geothermal opportunity. And that opportunity, if we can really figure it out and do it inexpensively, it's, it's effectively limitless. I mean, we could power our whole, we could power the whole planet, using just geothermal resources in the United States. And more importantly, we could use all that clean heat to make, you know, chemicals and clean hydrogen and power jets and all that sort of stuff. So, uh, yeah, that, that could be a pretty good national slogan if we ever need a new one. No, no, nobody drills like we do. Nobody so, drills uh, like we do. Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's the next step after drill baby drill. <laughs> so speaking of drilling, so liquid uh, LNG, what's uh, what's going on there? We, we've heard a lot about it yeah. lately, especially the European energy crisis. So what, yeah. what's the potential there? Well, everybody wants it. So we should probably figure out how to sell a lot more of it to the world. Um, so it's, uh, I mean, it's it's one, just, you know, for folks that aren't familiar with this, LNG, this commodity people hear about is, is it's natural gas. Uh, the problem with natural gas is it's a gas. So it actually takes up a lot of space. Um, in, in that form, you can't ship it economically overseas in, in the gas form. And so we have to liquefy it, which means compress it, and make it really cold. Um, you do that at an, a massive liquefaction facility. So these are the things that have sprung up in, you know, uh, there's one on the Chesapeake. There's a bunch down in Louisiana and Texas. Uh, and that's how you export it across the oceans. And you can send huge amounts of gas across the ocean doing this. Um, and thank God, because, uh, with Russia cutting off gas supplies to Europe, all of our allies are now left facing a cold winter with, uh, potentially no gas to heat their homes and, um, run their factories and all that sort of stuff. And so we've diverted 
a lot of the LNG exports that we were sending around to the rest of the world to Europe um, this year to help them sort of refill uh, in advance. Uh, and we've squeezed as much as we possibly can out of the existing facilities. We now need to build more facilities. And unfortunately, that's a no small thing. These are massive mm-hmm. multi-billion dollar facilities that re- often require kind of really long-term off-take agreements in order to get the financing to get them up and running. We need to do more. We need to license them more quickly. That's a, a, an area, I think, where this administration has received a fair amount of very justified criticism by being very slow in, in licensing these new facilities. I don't think they saw this energy. Hopefully, they didn't see this energy crisis coming and still act that way. Um, so the uh, we need to do that with the permitting, and then we need to figure out how to help these folks get, get this stuff financed to get it out. I mean, we've got unbelievable gas abundance in the U.S., so much so that we flare and burn it in West Texas for lack right. of markets. Um, that's criminal, given that there's a global energy crisis happening. We've got to figure out a way to get that out of West Texas and other places in the Permian and other places that's being flared, get it usefully into pipelines and sent down to the ships um, and sent over to our allies who desperately need it. Um, and not just in Europe, all around, because remember, every, every load of it that was diverted to Europe was diverted away from one of our other allies, like Japan mm-hmm. or South Korea, mm-hmm. right? like all these other people that we also don't want to be in you know, in a, in energy scarcity or crisis. Yeah. Right? So speaking of the, of the, the crisis in, in Europe, do, do you believe that's kind of the conventional view about what played into that is correct? You know, overreaction to Fukushima. Uh, so, you know, Germany uh, ceasing or closing down uh, nuclear plants, a kind of rush to green technology in a way that wasn't cost effective and then an, an over-reliance on Russia, Russian gas on the, the assumption that nothing would, would ever go disastrously wrong the way it has? I think you got it. I mean, they played right into Putin's hands, uh, and it's, t- it's utterly tragic. I mean, the, the amount of useful big facilities fully under Germany's control, for example, and other states in, uh, in, in, you know, in Northern Europe um, uh, being you know, being shut down. Not only did emissions go up, which is the, you know, the climate tragic thing, it was just red flag to the to, to Putin's bull, right? Um, and just gave him all of the leverage to come in and think he could do this. I mean, I've, I've been pleasantly surprised to see how well they've held together in the wake of all this after these you know disastrous errors. Um, and uh, but it is you know it's unfortunate that the whole thing had to happen in the first place. So you know, I mean, if there's a silver lining. It's hard that you can say silver linings. I mean, is this you know? It's, it's ongoing, and who knows how long uh, it will go and will disrupt the global economy. But if there's a silver lining, it is really accelerating um, a lot of plans. Mm-hmm. Um, on, for example, Poland just announced uh, after years of negotiation with the U.S. that it's going to buy six very large nuclear reactors um, from the U.S. from Westinghouse, kind of one of our big nuclear champion companies. Uh, it's a $30 billion project. It's probably the largest clean energy deal on the planet this year. I don't think the Poles are doing it because, I mean, the clean is a nice to have for the Poles. Right. Like they're doing it for energy security, right? Like they, you know, they, they want to get off of, uh, of Russian gas and they want to uh, help, you know, transition parts of their economy away from coal. And, uh, you know, it's a good thing for them. It's a great thing for us in our industry and our exports. Um, and so I think it has accelerated more of those conversations and it's brought in a lot of, folks in um, Europe back to sanity in terms of their energy transition. I mean, it's, it's good that they're enthusiastic about clean energy. They want to, you know, move to clean, but boy, the way that they were planning to do it, mm-hmm. you know, this hundred percent wind and solar and, um, and uh, you know, and grid balancing and stuff that it, uh, it, it, it was always a bit of a farce because they were always going to rely on um, French nuclear uh, and uh, and hydropower from Norway to, to balance it out. So they were going to say they were 100% renewable, but not really. Like they might have mm-hmm. had enough wind and solar in the countries to, to call themselves 100% renewable, but they were always going to rely on these other folks selling them stuff they just didn't want to have locally. But now it's it's pretty clearly not um, you know a realistic option, and they're going to have to be looking for a lot of other stuff as part of the mix. So let's hit one particular topic, and then then I want to ask you just two general questions um, before we conclude. So let's go to permitting. This has uh, uh, been part of the contention in Congress. Joe Manchin has a, a approach to permitting reform. It, it didn't get through this time around. Maybe Republicans will t- take it up uh, when they control Congress or at least the House uh, next year. 
But you, you've had people like Ezra Klein, progressive columnist for the New York Times, wrote, wrote a very notable column a couple months ago saying, holy cow, what have we done? Maybe this uh, <laughs> environmental regulation has gone too far because we want to build stuff and we can't. Yeah, it's, uh, this is now the long pole in the tent of a, of a transition to clean energy. Um, you know, it, it, unfortunately, it's at all levels. So there's a federal level and then there's kind of like a regional level of transmission and stuff. And then there's a, a state and local level. And we have just empowered people at every one of those levels to stop virtually anything that they don't want to see. And there's almost always somebody who doesn't want to see something go forward. So it's very difficult to get anything done, right? So, you know, at the federal level, we've got this grandfather of all, literally the grandfather of all environmental laws. It was passed before we had anything else, before we had the Clean Air Act, before we had the Clean Water Act or the Endangered Species Act or any of that stuff. We had the National Environmental Policy Act, which is a seven-page long bill. And now, <clears throat> to do the basic thing that NEPA asks every project to do, or every project of significance that goes onto public land or goes across state lines or any of that kind of stuff, now people often have to spend as much as a decade in something called an environmental impact review or environmental impact statement process, um, which lots of people can challenge in court. And so that is the procedure, <clears throat> excuse me, that has, you know, that famously that the Kennedys used to stop the Cape mm-hmm. Wind projects, you know, offshore in Massachusetts that, you know, people around the country used to stop uh, new pipelines from, uh, you know, from coming into any place that they don't want to see pipelines. Uh, so it's really been kind of weaponized both by the far environmental left and by NIMBY, you know, folks anywhere, not in my backyard, folks everywhere, right? Um, and then we also have, we've got, we've got similar and related problems at the regional levels, like at the levels of our power grids. Things are totally gummed up. My organization could have just... Uh, just did a huge review of uh, this really nerdy thing called the interconnect queues. This is like the line that you have to get into to link your new power plant up to a, a grid, like let's say in Pennsylvania. And the line for that is now uh, uh, approaching four years long. So you've got a, four years before you can even get connected to the grid. In California, it's much longer. All the lines are getting longer. Right? So the length of these lines has doubled. Uh, in the past couple of years. So it's getting worse, not better. Um, you know, it's getting to the point where it kind of doesn't matter how, you know, who's got the most ambitious plan to get to clean it, you know, to get to a net zero economy. You know, President Biden says he wants to do it by 2035. You know, if you actually look at like literally getting through that queue, it's it's completely impossible. So the goals that have been put forward to get to a U.S. clean power grid are literally impossible, just given how long it takes to get through these processes. Mm-hmm. And that's before you even get down to the states and counties where people are putting up moratoria all over the place for all kinds of things that they don't like, right? Like this county doesn't like new wind. This county doesn't like new CO2 being stored underground, right? All of these counties are putting up these, these kind of bans. And so we, this is the thing that, you know, the clean energy, you know, climate movement now needs to either take seriously or just admit failure. Because if we don't address these problems at all three levels, uh, we're just not going to see things built at the speed that they would need to be built, um, you know, to make a to make a transition and address emissions. Even so, if we had the technology, even if we had all the breakthrough technology. So the the general questions, as as promised, one has to do with climate change and how you think about it. So if you don't want to be Greta Thunberg, you know, an, an utter fanatic on the question, and you don't want to be someone who says, "Ah, oh, this is all this is all." a hoax and don't talk to me about your, your latest uh, IPCC report or whatever it is. What, what's, what, where, where's the middle ground that, uh, 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 that in your view, uh, a rational evaluation of the evidence takes you? Yeah, well, it, so in my view is that there's, there's definitely a problem, right? Like I think you can, you can either look at all the models and all that kind of stuff, or you can, you could just look around the world this year. Like this was a pretty bad year in the climate, right? I mean, a third of Pakistan was underwater at one point. There were totally unusual heat waves, uh, you know, all over Europe and all over the U S like it, it's clearly happening, right? Like things are happening. Um, they're, they're happening at about the pace that all the models that, you know, people have big doubts about, like they're happening at about the pace that people suggested, like it's getting warmer at about that pace. And, and that general warming is having a lot of local, really weird and sometimes scary impacts at a, maybe in a faster pace than we thought it would. So like, there's clearly a problem. We have a lot of problems in this world, right? And so calling it an emergency, you know, above anything else, like would we say it's like a worse problem than Russia invading Ukraine? Like probably not. Like that's probably 
worse. Like that's a real emergency. I think the better analogy is that it's, you know, it's more like diabetes than a heart attack. It's more like a chronic condition of the planet that we've brought, you know, as just part of developing. And, you know, as, as our, as our civilization gets more developed and maybe frankly a little older, uh, it's, uh, it's something we've got to manage and we can manage it, right? And we can manage it both through making changes, healthier eating, all that sort of stuff. Uh, we, but most importantly, we need like medicine and better approaches and better innovation in managing this thing. We just need better ways to manage our global energy system so that we're not getting these unfortunate impacts, but we're getting all the things we love out of our energy system, like, like reliable energy, you know, delivered affordably around the world for all of the goods and services and, you know, all that, all that stuff that we see as a part of a modern quality of life. That's kind of how I, how I see it, how we approach it. I think that's a, a, a reasonable way to do it. Um, you, you should be concerned about this problem. You, you shouldn't, you know, terrify your children um, about this problem. We all should do some stuff, right? We should all be willing to invest dollars in R&D for cleaner technologies or limited incentives to get them out into markets. We should all be excited when the U.S. can sell advanced reactors to Poland. We should do more stuff to help the mm-hmm. rest of the developing world build this stuff. Um, there's just reasonable stuff that we can do year after year. A lot of it's bipartisan. A lot of it's getting a lot of support in Congress. You know, the conversation's really evolving around a lot of this. And then final question, this takes us a a little beyond just the energy realm, but the energy realm is relevant to it, which is why I I thought of it in in the first place. But there's a debate among some people whether we are in a period of tech stagnation or not. Peter Thiel, perhaps the most prominent person associated with the stagnation view. And I'm simplifying horribly, but it's like, look, what, what have we invented? We get, we got these phones we carry around and we fiddle with them. And yeah, we have our email right there and, and we have social media, which just wastes our time and probably makes us less productive rather than, than more. Whereas we haven't put a man back on the moon, you know, the, it takes as long to fly to California as it did 50 years ago. Same thing with our with our trains. So we, we don't have these uh, transformative technologies coming online, which just does not make sense to me. I mean, I see, I, I see um, a technological transformation all around us. And just as part of this conversation, you know, a lot of this is, is not happening yet, but, you know, is potentially in prospect that would be a- absolutely revolutionary. So where are you on the idea that we, uh, whether we're suffering technological stagnation or not? Yeah, you know, I, I see, I'm probably on the other end of this and just that I, I spend a lot of time with innovators in this space and see all kinds of amazing new technology. I mean, I was, out, I was out at a, in Seattle three weeks ago in a microfusion startup where, you know, folks are, you know, planning these kind of these, these tiny things that, you know, at first they'll power uh, satellites and, you know, um, who knows, maybe they'll be, you know, powering our cars and we'll never have to fuel up our car again, you know, two decades from now. So, I mean, I, I see just amazing stuff all around us. The one thing that I will say is really difficult with all this, and um, I think it's something that conservative policymakers are really realistic about, is you know the energy system. Even if we had the perfect thing tomorrow, like you know, you have quietly, the world doesn't know, but quietly, in addition to running this amazing media platform, you have been you know beavering away on a microfusion reactor in your garage. You you have that breakthrough tomorrow. The scale of the global energy system is just so vast that, like, actually getting that out and deployed on any meaningful timeline where it's possible for it to make a dent in the world, like in the provision of energy around the world or the emissions from the global energy system, there's just a lot of inertia in the system, right? Like, it's the fundamental system that underlies everything. And so, you know, I think, uh, especially, I mean, we work probably with conservative policymakers and, you know, folks like the um, you know, the, the, you know, us, the, the, the Republican, you know, climate task force, for example, uh, that's, you know, it's produced its recommendations and all this, this year, I think they take this issue of inertia in the system and needing to make a meaningful transition very seriously. It's less like stagnation and it's more just the reality mm-hmm. of how difficult it is to transitions and the reality that like what we have is incredibly valuable, right? Mm-hmm. Like and it took a century to build and trillions of dollars yeah. unbelievable infrastructure and steel and all that kind of stuff to make it. Um, and so we kind of do have to be very careful about how we tinker mm-hmm. with it to make sure that it doesn't break down and we don't have like a, a Germany geopolitical moment or a California, you know, technical moment. Right. Um, yeah. I think that that, that's another stuff, thing. That's another like, thing I was, yeah. I was thinking about in the course of our conversation, when everything's right, you can sort of just forget about how it happens and believe it's magic. 
yeah. as soon as something goes wrong, you're struck by the sheer physicality of it, right? Like yeah. Germany, I'm sure they, they've been scrambling. So how do we store more LNG? What you're talking about with gas prices in the, the Northeast and the United States, you know, it's, it's coming in through one port in Boston, you know, and that matters. So it's, it's not magic. You know, there, there's steel and pipelines and infrastructure, and it's either there or, or not. It's not easy to get it there necessarily if it's not. Indeed. Indeed. It's, uh, uh, it is, you know, we all just take for granted that we can turn our light switch on or, you know, fire up the computer or the coffee maker or whatever. Like the amount of unbelievable human ingenuity and capital and all of that that's gone into just enabling us to do these things and just assume they'll be able to happen every day. And mm-hmm. I mean, we just live, I mean, we, we sort of live in a fantasy world, right? I mean, there's so much of the world where they can't rely on turning on that light switch, right? right. And like, they've got a yeah. brownout normally several hours every day, if they have reliable electricity at all. Right. Uh, and so we just take for granted this unbelievable abundance of energy we all live with, and that just empowers these modern lives. And it's, you know, it actually is quite fragile, uh, the system we have. So, Rich, I, I'm going to uh, conclude and, and head off with my, my phone with this miraculous little battery in it that I know a little bit more about now than I did 45 minutes ago. But I really enjoyed the conversation. Appreciate you taking the time and, and sharing your knowledge and perspective with us. Rich, it is always good to be with another Rich. And thanks so much for taking the time to explore this. We really appreciate it. Enjoyed the conversation. So that's it for us. You've been listening to a special sponsored edition of The Editor's Courtesy of ClearPath, an organization devoted to breakthrough energy technologies that you can find at clearpath.org. This is our final episode in the series. Our regularly scheduled programming returns next episode. And any rebroadcast, retransmission, or count of this game without the express written permission of National Review Magazine is strictly prohibited. This podcast has been produced by the incomparable Sarah Shuddy, who makes it sound better than we deserve. Thanks, everyone, for listening. We're the editors. We'll see you next time. Thank you